Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix... From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of Howard Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The human zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are yet another day closer to Election Day and another day closer to choosing our own destiny. But are you any better informed today than you were about a month ago? This morning we are opening the show with Laura Pidcock, the Shadow Secretary for Employment Rights, who's talking about bad bosses, the Labour campaign so far, and whether we really do have 14 million people living in poverty in this country. Labour have taken a hit uh, against Amazon, against Uber, against all sorts of other big companies, including Asda, so saying that they are using bad practice and employing people uh, in a bad way. I don't know why they've decided to take a tilt with these people, but it can only be uh, for one reason and one reason alone. You'll be finding out very shortly what that's all about. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be revisiting Labour's pledge to use road tax to subsidise rail fares to make them one-third cheaper, because a lot of you on Twitter seem to be pretty angry about that. And we'll find out why Mr Men are wrapped up in a row over sexism. I suppose it's pretty obvious, really. Plus, we'll get reactions to the latest in the Prince Andrew Slee scandal after the woman who claimed she had sex with him when she was only 17 was interviewed last night on Panorama. It's casting more doubt on Prince Andrew's original interview and casting more doubt on his claims that he doesn't remember ever meeting this woman. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Coming up a little bit later on in this hour, we'll find out what Boris Johnson uh, is going to make of what Donald Trump has said, because uh, Donald Trump has just given a press conference in which uh, he says he will stay out of the election, but he thinks Boris, in his words, will do very well. Uh, that's probably about as uh, as generous as he can afford to be. Uh, what Boris Johnson didn't want him to do, of course, was to go waxing lyrical about what a great guy Boris was and what a terrible guy Jeremy Corbyn was, but he's also said that he thinks that President Macron uh, has been very insulting by calling NATO brain dead. Donald Donald Trump, of course, is here in order to go to the NATO summit, which kicks off tomorrow 
uh, in Watford, which we will bring you uh, all the details of as soon as we get them and as they happen. Right now, though, let's have a listen to Laura Pidcock. Uh, she is, of course, the Shadow Employment Rights Secretary. She's also a candidate uh, in this election for Durham Northwest. She's a woman uh, who's also tipped to possibly take over from Jeremy Corbyn when he finally steps down as leader of the Labour Party. She's one of the young, up-and-coming women from the north of England who the Labour Party are so happy to entertain. However, she did have some very strange things to say about Labour Party policy, and I began by asking her about how she was coping with the election campaign so far. Obviously, all of the hundreds of candidates out in the country will, you know, we're kind of just like viewing it as one long day until 10pm on the 12th right. of December with little breaks where you have, have sleep because it's really important that we try and communicate in these last few days uh, what exactly is at stake in this general election. Yeah. But there's no doubt, you know, like the candidates are humans. They start to get tired uh, and start to see the finish line and start to really kind of want to convey the, the urgency and the seriousness of what is at stake in this general election. And what's the mood in the Labour camp at the moment? Because obviously, you know, the, the polls appear to be tightening up a little bit. It yeah. still looks as though it's all to play for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think from what I can see and what I can feel, the mood is very, very good. People are working flat out. People are not taking any vote for granted. There are millions of conversations happening. We have, you know, so many activists out on the doorsteps and they are... Um, battling door by door to kind of cut through some of the the noise that's that's kind of presented nationally um, and make sure that people know exactly what we stand for. And actually, I have to say, we've got an absolutely excellent manifesto, which is fully costed. And Well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Really, I mean, you know, not everybody really agrees proud. with that. Well, they, they might not agree, but it's a fact that we've, we've published our grey book um, that they're details, our spending commitments um, that we've also talked in our in our manifesto about um, all of our infrastructure commitments. I think actually what people are saying on the doorsteps are two or three things and one of them obviously is what, why I'm talking to you today. So one of them is definitely about the NHS. The next is about in-work poverty. Lots of people um, are telling me on the doorsteps. In fact, one person said to me yesterday, um, we're just kind of surviving around here, not thriving. And um, these are people, you know, the constituency I wish to represent um, are people who are in work because we know there is a huge in-work poverty problem. Yeah, and you've picked on a few. You've picked on a few yeah. businesses this morning. Asda amongst mm -hmm. them, Amazon, Sports Direct, Uber, and uh, a company called ISS. Both yeah. Asda and Amazon are refuting everything that you say, saying that they're, mm -hmm. you're absolutely wrong to say that they treat their workers wrongly. Asda say okay. they've just given their workers a pay rise. They employ 120,000 people, and it's mm -hmm. not really fair to say that they treat their workers badly. Why have you picked mm -hmm. on Asda as opposed to Tesco's? For example. Well, I think we're talking about because quite a lot of our proposals are actually um, for the whole of a sector, to so say for the whole of retail. Um, I think, you know, Asda has very recently engaged in a dispute, which was unfortunate. Uh, you know, staff um, felt like they had to sign contracts or they would lose their jobs. And that's not really um, what we would permit under a Labour government. Why would you not want your workers to sign a contract, though? 
Well, it was a contract that they believed would degrade their terms and conditions, and we think that rather than that being on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, we should move towards a system of negotiation, essentially, and that's what we're proposing, that um, people would, by sector, be able to, through a system called sectoral collective bargaining, and apologies if that sounds quite confusing, but it is very clear... No, I remember the 70s, I remember collective bargaining, (laughs) and we we can talk about the RMT dispute with uh, South West Trains, which has not worked terribly well on the collective bargaining front. 27 days of strikes, people trying to get to work, they can't do it. I've got people working here in this office, right? No, but I've got people working in this office who've just paid 80 Mm. quid for a a weekly season ticket and they can't get on the train. Yeah, and obviously, like, it is so, you know, so annoying when something's not your fault and you can't get to work. But the, the, the point is we are not currently working under a system of sectoral collective bargaining. So you kind of talk there about the 70s and you talk there about, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure why you brought that in. But well, because collective bargaining was a big phrase in the 70s. Yeah, and 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 um, we saw much less pay inequality. <laughs> you know that that is just a fact. And what we are saying is that actually a system where terms and conditions are negotiated actually leads to much less industrial action because uh, all of the issues that relate and pertain to a work and life are sorted out at source. Where you yeah, have but there was a, there was a, there was a lot more disruptive action and strike action in the seventies than there is nowadays. Where you have, I'll just finish, where you have employers, associations and workers' representatives meeting together to negotiate all aspects of life. And that, of course, reduces the propensity that workers would need to take industrial action because lots of the issues are are worked out before that. But what we're saying is currently there are 14.3 million people in poverty. There are two. I don't believe that figure. When when you you describe, yeah, no, when you describe poverty, hang on. Yeah, well, the United Nations say a great many things. What do you describe as poverty? Because the United Nations describes poverty as a family living in a household where less than uh, £21,000 is coming in. I don't call that poverty. Right, okay. So if you can't afford gas and electricity... and If you're making £21,000 a year, you're not in poverty, are you? But do you know, but do you know how much people's expenditure is? You yes, know, I do. About I know exactly how much. Ex- I know exactly how much people's rent, expenditure is. Yes. Bills, like people's pay has stagnated. No, but the so point is are- that poverty has been redefined, Laura, and that is one of the problems for people in the world now, because unfortunately, poverty is recognised <laughs> as being below a median figure. But actually, mm-hmm. if you talk, if you want to talk about proper poverty, twenty-one thousand pounds a year is not poverty, is it? Come on. Right. Well, 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 let's think about this. I represent people in northwest Durham. There's very high levels of employment, actually. I don't think unemployment here is the exact issue. How we define unemployment, by the way, is an interesting one. Because say if you've got four hours, you're technically not unemployed. Right. But um, it's not necessarily a full, a full working week. People are, uh, there is a low pay endemic in the northeast. So if you are on £8.21, we know that that does not, the facts just tell us, does not allow you uh, to live a good life, where you are topping up your wages, um, so your low pay, you are topping it up uh, with debt. If we look at the social but tax care pa- sector, But taxpayers are also topping it up with tax credits, aren't they? And I yes, think that's a terrible I th- system. I think you're right. So there are state subsidies for yeah. low pay, and that has to come to an end. We want to eradicate in-work poverty. We want to um, make sure that people are, are lifted out of, of that situation. And if we look at a system like social care, I think this depicts like the, exactly what we are trying to deal with. So you have a really atomised workforce, a privatised workforce, one where terms and conditions are very poor. It's a mainly female workforce, of course, there are men working in that sector. And what we are saying is, 
you know, for, for, I saw a woman's rota the other day. She was on from 7 in the morning till 11 at night. She's not paid in between visits. Uh, she's not paid mileage either. So actually she is drawn, uh, she's drawn even below the minimum wage for, for those hours because she's paid in essence for about five or six hours and she can't take up any other form of employment in that time. So, you know, that, that can't be right, can it? We no, I agree. But the problem the is, is there are some, some companies that are, are very mm. badly behaved. But I don't understand why yeah. you've not picked on those companies rather than big companies that employ a lot of people like Asda, like Uber, like Amazon, uh, who have yes, all said have who have all said that they're responsible. Yeah, and we have seen it documented, haven't we? It's, you know, it's well reported that there have been ambulances called out to Amazon warehouses where people, um, you know, we heard of a woman... Well, Amazon say, the... Amazon say that some of those ambulance uh, arrivals have been because of uh, personal problems that people have had. And I don't think it's mm. fair to blame Amazon to say that Amazon are actually causing people to have to be taken to hospital because well, they're making them work. I think, I think you're over-egging the pudding, aren't you? Do you? No, I, I don't think I am because I've spoken to people who work there, um, and the kind of the, the pressure is 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 huge. What what we are what we are asking for actually is very basic. It's what happens in a lot of other nations. We are asking that the minimum rate of pay. Uh, when worked out on full-time hours, allows you to live a good life, allows you to be taken. What out would you describe as a good we life? Are, what does that mean? Are, well, you know, you know, and, and this is, this is a relative term, but at least be able to afford your bills, be able to afford food, your rent, you know, a treat now and again. Why is that not something that we are asking for? What people? Well, lots of people can do that. Lots of people can decide how they spend their money. But well, you know, you're rejecting even that the UN reports make a report. Well, I don't. I, I don't take the UN seriously at all. No, I don't take. So their... how do you explain the nine? 15,000 food parcels given out across County Well, Dollar. I've always said that what, if you give food away for free... Well, I think if you give food away for free, people will come and get it. If you gave oh televisions God, away for free, honestly, they would also do such it. such right-wing nonsense. No, it's not right-wing nonsense. You, you want people to work... Like, a f- oh, hang on a minute. No, you want people no. to work a four-day week, right? So you're no, actually going to reduce the ability for people to make as much money news, as they do fake, now. That, that's fake news. You, you, do you honestly think that people enjoy standing in a food bank queue waiting for people to give them food. I don't think they enjoy it, but I think if you are willing, if you give if you give things them. away for free, it people, it's not patronising. Well, let me ask you one last people question. don't understand. No, hold let on. me ask you one you last question. don't understand the conditions of poverty. We are not suggesting a four-day week, actually. You've told, you, well, nothing. excuse me, that's in your manifesto that you want everyone to work no, a four-day week. No, it's not. Point to me where that's in the manifesto. So, you, so, so the announcement is, by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald that you want everyone to work a four-day week is not true. Is that well, what you're saying? I, you must have been getting that from a third party. What they are, Well, what Richard they are Bergen saying, was on television on Friday night talking about how the four-day week did not apply to the NHS, but it applied to everything else, and he got no, that wrong. You didn't say that. You just, that's just, you know, it's just making it up. What we are saying is that we... You're saying he didn't say that? He didn't say that it would apply everywhere else. Really? Okay, so yeah. the four-day week is now a myth, is it? Have you given up do on want, that? Do, do you want me to talk about this seriously, or should we just squabble over whether it's a four-day week or not? Well, you've, I, it's I'll, your policy. I'll, is it not your policies for people I'll to work a four-day week? Proposals. I'll set out the proposals on excessive hours. So this is what we are proposing. We are proposing... We know that workers in Britain work some of the longest hours of, in Europe other than Greece and Austria. We know that there are people who have very little leisure time, and we are saying or very little time to see their families, we are saying that we will look at reducing the yearly average hour that a worker works. 
moving towards an ambition by the end of the next decade, not tw- not this decade, not 2020, not in a few weeks' time, by the end of next decade to a 32-hour week. That is an ambition. And it's a very correct ambition to have, knowing that there are people who don't have enough hours and people who have excessive hours. And we'll do that through a few mechanisms. You know, so, so increasing the time in between shifts, increasing the minimum levels of annual leave, statutory annual leave that people have. And this will all be done in consultation with employers and workers. But not not on a four-day week, right? No, it has to be sector specific. How could you have a four day week? Well, you tell me. You, you're the guys that came up with the plan. Let me let me leave you with one final thought, Laura. You're yeah. very well paid as an MP. You work yeah. very hard, and I'm sure you work many more hours than a lot of people do. But I was looking at your expenses claims for the last year, mm. and you've claimed for three items under a pound. Can you explain what that was for? Got. In, in, when you when you're an MP, you have like I think the the way the expense system is sometimes mischaracterised. So there'll be office costs, so stationery that my office needs. It's not a pound going into my bank account. That I'm like, oh great, I've finally got that pound back from the state. This will be office costs for something that my office staff need. Okay, Laura, thanks yeah. very much indeed. Thank you. Laura Pidcock there uh, from the Labour Party telling us that the four-day week is in fact something that I just imagined. We'll talk to Charlotte Ivers about that coming up. She's Talk Radio's uh, political reporter, of course, and correspondent, because quite a remarkable series of things were said there by Laura Pidcock. She is, of course, standing for the Labour Party in Durham Northwest, alongside Richard Holden from the Conservative Party, David Sewell from the Green Party, David Alexander, Stephen Lindsay, from, uh, who's independent, Watt Stelling, independent, Michael Keith Peacock from Liberal Democrats, and John Wollstenholme from the Brexit Party. We'd like to hear from you on this as well. 0344 499 1000. Am I the only one that imagined the four? day week was Labour Party policy? I'm sure they said it. I'm absolutely certain. This is Talk Radio. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Now Ziggy played guitar Jamming good with weird and gilly And the spiders from Mars He played it but made it too far Became the special man Then we were Ziggy's band Ziggy really sang Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. Matthew Wright's here from one o'clock, of course. 0344 499 1000. We've got loads of your calls to take. We will get to them. Uh, if you haven't got through yet, don't be uh, in despair because we have got some time. We're here until one o'clock, of course. We're now going to talk, though, about dogs, one of my favourite subjects. Louise Glazebrook uh, is here because it turns out, right, that because people have become so obsessed with politics in this country, they've become so obsessed with Brexit uh, that they're starting to name their dogs after politicians believe it or not. Um, I'm amazed if anybody's actually called their dog Brexit. Surely you wouldn't do that, would you? Louise, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, uh, I've actually got a friend who's got a dog called Boris, who wasn't named after Boris Johnson, but um, she told me that very shortly after Boris became Prime Minister, she was getting some very funny looks from people when she was walking around in the countryside shouting, Boris! Um, and people were kind of looking round at her as if she was some kind of demented fan of the Tory party. Um, so it's quite interesting that you've got this uh, research published today suggesting that lots of people are naming their, their dogs Joe uh, and Jeremy. Yeah, so the research by Rover.com has surveyed over 2 million dogs, which is obviously a huge quantity. Surveyed the dogs? 
well, the owners, the owners <laughs> of those dogs. Right. But, um, yeah, the research is showing lots of rises in lots of different areas. So a lot of the things that are coming on the, you know, on the big screen are having um, an impact on names. So films, um, TV programmes, they're, they're all... You know, rise in popularity. Yes, and is it a kind of is it uh, does it change with 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 the years, as it were? I mean, you know, like I don't know, ten years ago, were people likely to to name their dogs after other things? Yeah, definitely. And I think that what we're seeing a trend to for this year is that people are actually looking backwards and choosing names that are losing popularity for humans but gaining popularity for dogs. So some of those names like Malcolm and Clive and Gertrude and George that would be sort of seen as more traditional but mm. are becoming more popular for dogs. Yeah, I see you've got Nigel in there as one of yeah, those traditional names. Would that, would that not go with the um, with the political stuff? That's true, it would. But equally, it would also go along some of those names like Gary um, and uh, Malcolm that, yeah. you know, Colin, we're not seeing those so much in humans. And I see that Lassie is, is still a, a sort of popular name and Spots. I'm really surprised at that. Yeah, again, they are from sort of, you know, a, a few decades ago, but right. I think people are choosing them because perhaps they're not seeing them as much, so we are seeing more of them. I mean, for example, your name is up 130% in the UK. What, my, my name? Yep. Michael. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. It's a funny it's, name for a dog. I know, but and try and have a guess what it's most what breed it's most common in. Michael. Um, I don't know, sheepdog? Jack Russells. Really? Yeah. Why wouldn't you call it Jack? Don't know. Michael is such a, I, 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 that's made me feel quite strange. I don't know why. I've got <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of them walking my dog, around. The my country. dog is called Ziggy, right? And yeah. I, I didn't actually name him, but it's, uh, um, uh, my other half did. But mm -hmm. he's named after Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. Um, and I was very pleased to see over the weekend that there's a Ziggy Labrador similar to ours, mm. uh, which is a working dog with the Manchester Police, one of those sniffer oh. dogs. So that was quite it's a nice good to shared see. name. It is a good shared yeah. name. Yeah. What yeah. about some of these more kind of new age type names? Games, like sort of um, Sansa and uh, Game of Thrones type yeah. related things. Yeah, so I think that goes again to what we were talking about before, which is where the big screen is having an impact. So like, uh, you know, Toy Story 4, Lion King, Game mm. of Thrones, um, people are turning to names like Jesse and um, Woody and right. Ned. And I mean, I'm not a Game of Thrones fan, but for those Me who neither. are, obviously that that's um, had a big impact. Yes. Um, but equally, like you say, some of the food, you know, the food sector is having an impact. So kale, chia, mm. cookies. Waffle, all of those names are also having a bit of a resurgence. Yeah, interesting. And I'm seeing uh, also the top predicted dog names mm -hmm. for 2020 are going to be more tied to kind of movie themes like Wonder Woman and Goose and Maverick. Yeah, I mean, those are the predictions. Goose and Maverick, for me, feel like um, I can imagine a number of dogs being called that. Wonder Woman's a harder one because I think it's... I get it, but I think it's a harder one to be calling. Like, you'll know with a dog calling their name or saying anything. Wonder Woman just doesn't quite roll off the tongue, does it? Doesn't, it doesn't, does it? And frankly, no. if you saw somebody out with a dog and they were shouting <laughs> Wonder Woman at it, you'd start to kind of walk in the opposite yeah. direction, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, you probably would. You know, yeah. like Superman yeah. or something. Exactly. I mean, Batman, it seems yeah. very odd. Now, you might not be surprised to know this, Louise, because we do get a lot of people calling mm. in to this show. We've got Richard in Yorkshire, uh, who's got an interesting name for his dog, oh, yeah. which I mentioned earlier. Let's see what he's got to tell Go us. On. Richard, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, um, tell me the name of your dog. Brexit. That's amazing. I oh. thought to myself, there can't be anyone who's called the dog Brexit, and you are the man. Uh, what sort of dog is it? Yeah, and it's it's a French bulldog. Okay, so is that the one with the little pointy ears? That's the one, yeah. Nice. And and how uh, how long have you called it this? Have you always called it Brexit? No, uh, we've only had it for eighteen months, and we've uh, 
we couldn't decide on a name, and uh, that was the only thing that was on the TV, uh -huh. so we called it Brexit. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you got it three years ago and you couldn't decide what to do <laughs> until now. <laughs> that would have been a better story, yes. <laughs> That's great. What sort of dog? Is, 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 is it a he or she? She. It's a she. And a, a, a nice, nice dog? Happy dog? Beautiful dog, yeah. Yeah, Wonderful. really nice nurtured. Right, OK. Yeah. And she's obviously a, a lever, presumably. Yes, yes. OK. Very right. much so. All right, Richard, yeah. thank you very much. There you go, Louise. I thought wow. to myself, if I ask him anybody who names their dog Brexit, I can't believe there will be somebody, but Richard in Yorkshire. But there you go. I wonder if there's more of that, you know? Well, I'm sure people will be getting in contact with you to let you know. Yeah, probably not in London, because, of course, in London, most people want to stay in the European Union. But, that's you know, true. That can, that, that's fascinating. So um, tell us a bit about Rover.com. What is that? Yeah, so Rover.com is a website where if you are looking for someone to help you with dog care, dog sitting, then you can visit them. And actually, they have created a name generator. So if you pop on there and you put in your dog's breed mm. and uh, gender, then it will give you the most popular name for that breed, but then also with some other options. Okay. And on the dog sitting front, mm. so do they vet everybody? And so if you they wanted do. to hire somebody to come yeah. and, and sit yeah, in your house and look after your dog, they can be sort of pretty well recommended. Yes. So... Um, uh, the people that are on that website are heavily vetted and they have to go through a process. It's it's not just something where you apply and then you get popped on there. OK, brilliant. Louise, thank you very much indeed. Louise Glazebrook there uh, from uh, rover.com. Uh, if you need somebody to pet, to pet sit or dog sit for you, uh, that might be the place to go. And also, if you've got a dog and you don't know what to call it, you can either call it Brexit or you can go on rover.com and give it a different name. Fascinating stuff. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. 0344-499-1000 is the number. We might be able to squeeze a couple of calls in before the end of the show. Uh, we're off at one o'clock. Back, of course, tomorrow at ten, when we'll be just eight days away from the general election. I know I keep going on about this, but we should really remember that we are getting down to the wire here. Pretty soon, uh, it will be seven days, and then we'll be into next week, and we'll be doing the all-night uh, show, of course, here through the night, uh, bringing you all the election results as they come in uh, right here on Talk Radio with lots of special guests and a few surprises along the way as well. And, of course, we want to hear from all of you between now and then because you are the people who are voting for the next government of this country. But we're going to talk movies now because many of you might remember uh, that... Uh, Steve Van Zandt was in here on Friday uh, talking to uh, Julie Hartley Brewer. Now, he, amongst many other great uh, performances that he's put in, uh, stars in the new Martin Scorsese movie, The Irishman, uh, alongside Al Pacino uh, and, of course, Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci as well. Um, now, um, Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest directors I think the movie business has ever seen, uh, has given an interview to Rolling Stone magazine, and he's basically said, which I think something uh, a lot of people would have also gone along with some time ago, uh, that he doesn't make films for your phone. He makes films basically for the big screen. Uh, he's made this one particularly for Netflix and it's on Netflix now, uh, having been out for a very short run uh, in some independent cinemas and Netflix covered the £122 million budget hoping that that will be covered by people um, signing up to Netflix and actually subscribing to it. But let's talk to Rebecca Perfect, Talk Radio's film critic to see what she makes of it. Well, Rebecca, very good afternoon to you. Hi, 
good afternoon to you, Mike. Well, I mean, I suppose he would say that, wouldn't he, Martin Scorsese? Because, I mean, he is one of the premier directors. I think I've loved everything he's ever made. I don't think I could say that there's anything that he's made that I haven't liked. Um, people have told me, I haven't seen The Irishman yet, and I know you were talking about it the other day, but I, I, people have said it's very long. Yes, it is. It's three and a half hours long, so it's quite the sitting yeah. <laughs> to sit through this. I think I kind of get it with what Martin Scorsese is talking about because he is of a generation prior to the way that we consume content nowadays. And his, the majority of his films, would, it would never even be considered that it would needed to be watched on a phone. Right. And so he makes movies to be seen in movie theatres or cinemas. Um, he does not make them necessarily for us to watch on the smallest devices we have possible. So this is going to put him up in arms. I completely understand that. And to be honest, I, I kind of agree. We're losing the battle in some respects of getting people to the cinemas nowadays because there's so much choice yeah. on multiple platforms in which to watch content. And with Netflix, I think they're doing a really clever thing to allow more people to have access to great filmmaking. So The Irishman is a great example of that. Roma was a great example um, a couple of years back when it was um, shown like The Irishman is, it has been on a limited release so it could qualify for the award seasons. Right. But actually, more people got to see more of an art house film because it was available on Netflix. So it's a bit of a funny balance mm. to create with, with these movies and the way we watch them nowadays. But if you're sitting in the sort of boardroom of Netflix with all of this talent surrounding you, you might be thinking to yourself... Well, he could have said you could watch it on a quite a big television. <laughs> yeah. You know, because, I mean, that is the business. A, yeah, but he did say maybe on a, on a, on a slightly large iPad. Yes. <laughs> the compromise that he would make. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not sure how big the iPads get now, but to be honest, I think they pretty much mirror a small TV screen to mm. some extent. So I kind of get where he's going. It's just, there's so much detail and there's so many little bits of nuggets of greatness in The Irishman, which is why it's being kind of touted as one of those big contenders for the Best Picture Award, um, that if you, if you see it on a small screen, you might miss it all. You know, things like the tracking shots, the beautiful kind of the music and the sound and everything that comes together to make this a Scorsese classic is what he has put into this. And yet, if you're not watching it and giving it the love and attention that maybe he feels that it deserves, you can understand why he's going down this route of worrying about people consuming it on their phone. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm always puzzled when I come into work in the mornings and see people on the tube watching something on their phone, which yeah. is clearly, you know, um, either a, a mini-series or something on Netflix. But, you know, it's obviously a, you know, a cinematic-type scenario going on. And I just think to myself, this is really not how I would want to watch anything standing on a train with earphones in, um, very, very sort of crowded around by lots and lots of people you don't know. But I, I agree with you because I don't really tend to do that at all on my phone. I like to sit down. I like to immerse myself in whatever I'm watching. Yeah. But I think, you know, both you and I are not essentially natives to this digital world. We've come into it mm. partway through our lives. And I think there's a big difference with the younger generation. And, of course, there's got to be an understanding that if these older directors want to get younger people into their movies and watching those, they have to appreciate the appetite in which they digest the content yeah. that they're watching. So there has to, I, I don't think he's kind of ridiculing it completely. It's probably more of a throwaway mm. comment of, please don't, yeah. not on this film. Well, you know but what I it's like. I mean, it. yeah, I mean, we, we have, have, have it hard enough to get my, I mean, my kids, for example, 15 and 12, I find it hard enough to get them to concentrate on anything for two minutes. The idea that we're going to sit down <laughs> with them for three and a half hours to watch a movie, I just don't, I don't see them doing it, you know, because they're the YouTube generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a movie that was made for 
the Scorsese fans. You know, this brings together that incredible cast, as you mentioned before, Pacino, De Niro, Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel's in this. You know, it's all those stores that that we have all grown up watching and love and will want to watch this for that reason, to see this amazing cast come together with such an iconic director. However, for that newer generation, you're completely right. The attention spans are much shorter. The way they digest content is much more limited to what we're used to. And, you know, when and also they these, they are all, these are all old men to, put to them as well, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So they might not really get the, get the greats in this respect, which I think, for me, it kind of kills me a little bit. It's a shame to right. kind of hear that. But that is just how it goes. And we have to continually, within filmmaking, within telly, within all of the different aspects adapt and adjust to how people are digesting their content nowadays. And I think what Scorsese is doing is he's just acknowledging it, putting his two pennies worth in and just saying, you know, I get it, but please don't on this occasion because it's just, I don't know how I'd make films for that. I'd have to look into that, but do I really want to be doing that in my career right now? Probably Probably not. not. And are you (laughs) one of those who thinks it, it actually does keep your attention for three and a half hours? You don't need to chop, say, half an hour off it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it had everything in it. It is a slow burner. I completely get that. It's a story of kind of reflection and redemption to some extent. And that stuff has to play out. It's, I don't think the time frame on this was gratuitous for any reason. I think it worked entirely for the piece. But I get it. I, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth of, of, of um, people watching the movie since it's come out on Netflix and kind of going, I'm not sure if I can sit through it for three and a half hours. And I totally get that. Mm. If you're not in the mood, you're not going to do that. There are other great, you know, award-contending gangster films that have a little bit more pace to it. Um, I saw yesterday Motherless Brooklyn, which is an Ed Norton film. Oh, I've, yeah, I've, that, seen, uh, I've seen posters for that. Yeah, so that is, is essentially similar genre, different cast, obviously, but much more faster pace. And I think, you know, I'm going to be reviewing that on Julia's show this week, but... If you are one of those people that finds the Irishman a little bit too slow, you might want to check that one out instead. So there's pr- plenty of mm. variety out there for the gangster or the mob genre of movies that you can still go and watch, depending on whatever attention span you possibly have for the film. OK. Well, listen, Rebecca, I will look forward to seeing you uh, here on Friday and hearing your uh, reviews Thursday, I should say, uh, and hearing <laughs> yeah. your reviews with uh, Julia Hartley Brewer. Rebecca Perfect there telling us about the Irishman. Martin School says he says... Please don't watch my films uh, on a telephone. Well, I wouldn't. I would never do that. Sorry for anyone who does. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So it's very unusual in this business, and particularly on this show, to invite the same guest that we had on yesterday. But we had a bit of a row yesterday, and I felt like Bruce Williamson had a lot more to say. But let's have a listen to what happened yesterday first. The fuel only goes up. I remember quite a long time ago, uh, fuel was down around a pound um, a litre. It's now about pound fifty. That's a 50% increase. Nobody travelling by rail has had their fares increased by 50% uh, in as little as a year. Um, Have they? I'm, I'm not sure I agree no, with you. you. Well, you're, you're not sure you agree with me. Well, it's, cert- it's certainly true that fuel duty hasn't gone up. Yeah, but that's, doesn't ma- that doesn't matter, Bruce. That's not the issue. But we haven't got any more time to talk about it because you've been waffling on about Denmark. But never mind. Uh, we'll get you back on and we'll have a proper argument because I think there are going to be a lot of motorists not very happy about this particular plan. Now, Bruce, it's very unusual for me to feel in any way bad about the way I talk to people, but I thought I was a little bit sharp with you yesterday and I thought I should probably forgive you uh, for talking about Denmark and I should uh, probably give you another chance to try and make your specious argument about how you think that uh, it's a good idea to subsidise rail travel by taxing people in their cars. Welcome back. Um, I hope you appreciate the gesture. 
No, I, I feel honoured and privileged. <laughs> like, it's always good fun to talk to you. I, no, I, it know, is. I like a bit of banter. No, of course. And, and you and I have had many good arguments, and yeah. I, I, great, I greatly appreciate the fact that you're such a good sport, to be honest. But I'll tell you what was interesting, is after we did speak, there was an awful lot of action on Twitter, as there often is, after the show finished. And a lot of people who were motorists were not happy about the idea that they pay road tax ostensibly to, uh, to, to, to sort of put money towards the upkeep of the roads and all of that. And they don't wish to subsidise what they regarded as some quite wealthy commuters, particularly in the southeast of England, who go to work on the train because they can afford to. Yeah, um, but I mean, <laughs> where do I start? I mean, there's a whole load of arguments about how, um, you know, rail is taxed unfairly compared to the road network. Um, now, should we just go back to one of the points I made yesterday? You said that uh, uh, we have the, the most heavily taxed fuel in, 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 the, in the world, you said, and yeah. I disputed it. And according to the RAC... The following countries have more expensive fuel than us. Netherlands, Denmark, Greece, Italy, Finland, France, Portugal, and some other sources also include Iceland and... Uh, now, when you say they have the more expensive fuel than us, does that mean that they have more expensive fuel actually at the pump? Or yeah, these, have... these are pump prices. Okay. So currently, the, the, the Dutch are paying the equivalent of pound forty-three, and in this country, we are paying roughly pound twenty-five. What? Yeah. No, you're not. I, yeah, I'm no, paying. Well, I'm paying. To, well, I'm paying about one pound fifty where I go. Well, you must be going to a very expensive place then. But not yeah, really. Um, no. Well, we, we, we can get people to tweet us while we're talking, but I don't think it's been down around one twenty for quite some time. Uh, well, that's what the RAC say, you know, and um, other other websites have a similar sort of um, uh, you know figures as well. And the other the other thing is that the price of fuel, believe it or not. Mike, has actually come down in real terms. Uh, again, if you go to the RAC website, they've got a tracker about the cost of fuel over the years. Uh, and 10 years ago, it was 108. And if you, if you factor in inflation, that's equivalent to about £1.45 now, um, which is more expensive. Yeah, but that's always a bit tricky, isn't it, when you say in real terms. Here we go. Look, UK prices as of Thursday the 28th of November. Highest, 158.9 pence petrol. Yeah. Average, 125.9. There you go. I'm right. Lowest 114.9. Well, you're not actually right. What I'm no, saying is... agrees with the RAC figures that I quoted. Well, well, you can say, you know, well, you can say the average price is 125.9, but what I can probably tell you is that if you want to look at the average price in London and the South East, I think you'll probably find that it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, but that's always been the case. Yes, it? And it's right. on motorway service stations, it's, it's more expensive. Yes, well, I'm but sure. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is that, say, for example, where people would be getting the most subsidy on the railway, where most people travel on the railway, which is in and out of London, they yeah. will be paying potentially a lot more money uh, on petrol than they will be paying. And also, as somebody pointed out yesterday, when you travel by rail, you buy a ticket. That's it, yeah. right? When you have a car, you have to pay for the petrol, but that's only a small part. You also have to pay insurance. You also have to pay for the upkeep of the car. You also have to pay for the servicing of the car. You know, there's a lot more extra added on um, pieces of, 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 of revenue that you need to find, which are all taxed by the government, right, including the road tax, uh, which is all, all the way on top of the petrol price, right? So for you to say that in some way it's OK to subsidise the rail fares with the road tax, it's a double whammy on motorists. Well, I mean, you know, I, I agree there's all sorts of costs. By the way, did I mention that I'm a motorist myself? You know, I do own a car and I do drive. No, I get that. Rabid car banning no, that's people, like people who go the mad cyclist brigade who say, <laughs> oh, I also have a car, you know, but, it's, yeah. but I still am in favour of cycling. I just, I just think it's very hard. Listen, I appreciate that you've got your position to, to defend and you're more than welcome to, to make the argument. I just think that it's very difficult to uh, equate owning a car 
and travelling by train because one of the reasons people do travel by train is you don't have to worry about parking the car, which costs you money, which is also taxed. You don't have to worry about taxing the car. You know, what I'm saying is, is that people who travel by train are spending much less money to get around than people who have a car. Well, I, it depends, I suppose. It depends how much you travel by either car or, or, or train, doesn't it? But, I mean, my, my sort of general point is, is the unfairness in the taxation. And I know you're putting a case for the motorists, but, there are, you know, like I say, if, if the government freezes fuel duty, I can't see how they can sort of keep a straight face and continue to jack up rail fares. So, you know, you've got this situation where fuel has gone down in real terms and, and, and rail prices have gone up in real terms. There's a few other anomalies as well, like, for instance, you know, the, the network rail have to pay business rates on their premises, but, you know, the, the Department for Highways doesn't pay business rates on motorway junctions. Well, hang on, uh, the Department for Highways is a government department, isn't it? Well, so, yeah, effectively, so is network rail. But, I mean, you know, well, it's the, not, the, because the, people are making money out of network rail and profiteering from it. Uh, well, no, because it's state-owned, it's nationalised. Yeah, but the, people, no, but the people who work there are not civil servants, are they? Well, they are, effectively. Well, effectively um, is not the same as they are, though. That's like you saying you're effectively a car driver, which, of course, you are, but it's not your prime uh, thing that you do. Well, no, it's not. I don't do it for a living. No, granted. But, you know, there's, it's just another example of, of a cost that's dumped on the rail industry that isn't dumped on, on the motorist. I mean, and, and the upkeep of the roads, for instance, is largely done by local authorities who get their revenue not just from cars, but they get from general taxation, from business rates, from uh, central government grants. So pedestrians are paying for the upkeep of the roads. You know, I, it, it's, it's a very tangled web, but it's not, it's not this sort of black and white picture that, you know, some people present of, of the motorist being ripped off and, and everyone else getting an easy ride. I'm you not know, suggesting that that's the case. However, uh, to then say that you're going to take more money off the motorist and off the road tax to give to the rail passengers, then that surely is, is, is kind of un, unevening the playing field, if you like. I've just been well, sent... I, I, I'd see it as levelling the I, I don't think, as I understand it, Labour's proposal isn't uh, to take more revenue. It's to sort of take some revenue that's already been allocated and just reallocate it for rail so that uh, instead of building roads, they'll be uh, subsidising... Uh, for instance, 16-year-olds or under-16s, which, you know, obviously as a rail campaigner, I've got, I've got to approve of, really, you know. Um... Well, I'm looking at a piece of information that's just been sent to me uh, yeah. by the European... Well, it's coming from the European Environment Agency, who are looking at the taxes on fuel, and I've got United Kingdom at the very top of all EU countries in terms of the price structure for leaded, unleaded and diesel automotive fuel, right? Yeah, I'd be interested to see those, because... Okay. Uh, you know, again, they, they contradict the RAC's figures and, and some other figures I've seen. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, can, you, know, you know what you can do lots with different figures, can't you? I'm getting loads of people sending me... I'm getting loads of people. I've got somebody called uh, uh, G. McMahon send, sending me the price for him, 138, where he lives. Uh, yeah. 134.9 in mid-Kent, says J. Star. Simon says 120 for petrol, 125 for diesel in my local Tesco's. Right. I'm obviously getting ripped off to the tune of uh, an awful lot of money. Uh, Pete says Tesco in Chelmsford is up weighs 124 for unleaded. Um, I've been paying 125 for as long as I can remember in the northwest, says Alan. So, you know, the point is, is that in the end, um, I think that it's disingenuous for any government to use tax which is collected for a specific purpose, and the road tax is collected for a specific purpose, and then use it for something else. Well, it, it isn't. I mean, that's the whole point. It isn't, I mean, it isn't hypothecated. Um, you know, that there's a lot of... Well, you don't pay road tax unless you drive a car, OK? 
sure. So therefore, you collect road tax from car drivers to make sure that you have enough money to keep the roads in the right state of, of repair, don't you? OK, that would be, that'd be fine. But then the other side of the coin is you have to say that roads are only paid for by car tax. And that isn't the case. Roads are paid for by other forms of taxation as well. Well, like what? Well, as I just said, you know, general taxation, council tax, business rates, they're all contributing to the maintenance of the roads. Well, we all know that the £40 billion that is collected on the road tax is not spent on the roads, don't we? Uh, do we? I yeah. don't know. I don't um, think they spend £40 billion on the roads in any given year. I'm pretty sure that's the case. Right. I, you, you may be right. I so so to, to divert even more of it, and I'm not saying that's right, I'm saying that's wrong. So to divert even more of it, to subsidise, and this is a good point, to subsidise people who can afford to travel by rail... Uh, on a regular basis, which makes them probably quite wealthy commuter types. Well, no, I, I don't You're subsidising. There's all sorts of ordinary people. You know, I mean, London is a brilliant example because you know, you, you know, you know how how dependent London is on a rail network. It just cannot function. You know, because it just could not accommodate that amount of road transport. So, you know, to, to view as, as I do the rail network as a sort of you know. A, a, an essential part of the economic machine that generates wealth for the country. I think, you know, you have to look at it in those terms as well. And also, if, if we can persuade more people to travel by train, that leaves the roads less congested, which I think... Very possibly so, like. but one of the reasons that many people have given up travelling by train is because there's not enough capacity already. And this well, is what indeed. we keep being told, that why you need HS2, is because there's not enough capacity on the trains for all the people that want to travel on them. Well, I mean, there, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, but, you know, that means we need more investment in the railways, don't we? We, we are desperately short of capacity across the network. Well, surely, and as you and I have suggested before, then, take all that money they're going to waste on HS2 and put it into the network properly. Uh, yeah, I, I think we shouldn't look at it as an either-or thing. You know, we need extra capacity on uh, sort of north-south axis. Yes. We also need capacity on the commuter lines as well. And those less glamorous lines, you know, across the country, you know, cross-country route as well, is, is overcrowded. So there's, there's, there's a huge case for investment on, on all the lines, just not HS2. Right. And then there's the environmental argument as well. You know, in your news bulletin, we're talking about, you know, the, the, the hottest year on record. I'm not responsible for that. No, of course not. But, well, you are, because you drive a car. You know, no, I'm not talking about that. No, so I'm not responsible for the news output. No, of course not. <laughs> but I was just saying it's topical. That you know, wouldn't that, be news on my, on my station. <laughs> We have a climate emergency. <laughs> no, we don't. Rubbish. Yes, we do. No, and, we don't. And, All right, explain to me why it's an emergency. Uh, because if we do nothing, yeah. then the planet is doomed. Is it? Oh, yeah. how have you told you that? Uh, scientists. Scientists? Yes. And when you, know, you say doomed, what do you, and... when you say doomed, Bruce, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, the... the, the... Do I really have to give you a lecture on climate change? Right? No, you have to tell me where your evidence is that the planet is doomed. That's all I'm asking. Okay, Explain uh, the, the, your explanation. There's, there's any number of scientific journals, which are not very rock and roll and pro probably quite heavy going, that say that, you know, uh, that, that climate change is real. There's the overwhelming consensus. The science is proven. It's not so there's a consensus, in other words, that it's doomed. Um, and, and if you, you know, if you allow sea levels to rise, I mean, don't you think if London floods, in fact, I was reading, I was reading an article just yesterday that says that the Thames barrier is almost certainly going to fail in the next few years. Almost certainly. Who says that? Don't you think that would be quite catastrophic? Well, it would be catastrophic if we got hit by a Boeing 747. It would also yeah. be catastrophic if we got hit by a meteor. But it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Um, well, it, 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 it probably is. That's probably. Right, yeah, so been... you've gone from the world being doomed to yeah. London probably maybe flooding. That's just 
London probably maybe being flooding is just one example. Well, that's not I science, mean, it, is it? Science what? is about measuring evidence and coming up with a theory about why that evidence has happened. There is no evidence that the planet is doomed. I'm sorry. Well, I, 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 I just have to disagree with you there. Well, you, you know? can disagree with me all I, you I, like, I, but you don't have any evidence. You haven't given me I any. I do have evidence. Read the scientific journals. Which ones? Well, um, New Scientist would be a start. Scientific okay. American so in New Scientist, I, I will find a story that says yeah. that London is going to be flooded and that we are doomed. I'll, 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 I'll email you that story do, if you like. You please. Know, and what about, you know, other, other cities being flooded, farmlands being flooded, making them, um, you know, unproductive, um, droughts usually have an effect on food production and make us, you know, make uh -huh. us stuff. Right. You just add all these yeah, but you, you just These are not facts, though. These are predictions, right, which yeah, may or may not on, come true. They're based on robust Well, listen, science. all the robust science in 1989 predicted that London would flood in the year 2000 if nothing was done. The United well, Nations put out their climate change predictions and they were wrong. Um, yeah, they're not... <laughs> that doesn't... That, OK, it, it doesn't mean you can discredit the whole of science or everything. I'm not discrediting it. I'm just saying to say that the planet is doomed is rubbish. Yeah. Total nonsense. No, it's not total nonsense. Mike. OK, it's, well, you can talk to me. Well, yeah. when do you think we're going to be doomed by if we don't do well, anything? It, it, Progressive doom. I see. Know, progressive doom. In an <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, let's talk about electric cars because once we have electric cars, presumably uh, there won't be any road tax to collect, will there? Well, there will. I mean, it's 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 a growing problem for the government because. As more and more cars go electric, the revenue they get from liquid fuels is going down and down. That's what I mean. So there will be a point where they will have to start taxing you for charging your electric cars. Um, so this idea that we should get electric cars because they'll tax us less is actually nonsense, then? That's the one thing you can predict. Well, it's, it's nonsense. It, it's, it's, it's not nonsense in the short term, but long term, yeah, you might be right. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously the government wants to encourage electric cars, but like I say, they, they will be for forced in, in future to, to tax you for owning an electric car. They might find a way of taxing you less. Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm not worried now about whether they tax me or not, because now that I know that we're all doomed, I'm just not well, going to pay we're my not tax. Well, if we do something they, about it, yeah. <laughs> well, well, if we all get out of our cars and travel by train, the world's not doomed, is that what you're yeah, telling that, me? That would be, well, maybe it, it wasn't would, that bad would, in the first place, then. It would contribute to us not being doomed. I see. Yeah, yeah. Right, OK. I'm going to have to get you on every day, Bruce, at this rate. <laughs> I'm more than happy, Mike. It's a right. pleasure. I've got the if I, I'll leave you with this. Fair Fuel UK campaign has tweeted, Mike Graham, only 20% of the fourth largest income streams of the Treasury paid by drivers goes back into roads. So there you go. Yeah. They're, they're, so they're already <laughs> using 80% of it on other stuff. I suppose they might as well use the rest of it on the trains. Yeah, that'd be good, yeah. yeah. There you go. We finally find a solution. Bruce Williamson, thank you very much indeed. Uh, he's from the campaign group Rail Future. Um, so, we're all doomed. Uh, I'm off, because there's not much point in finishing the show, is there? This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.